Old Testament at times can be overwhelming. You can get through some books of the Bible and you're like, what did I just read? Like, I have no idea what I just read. And we've been actually in the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. We've been in this series, Prophets and Kings, for almost like a year and a half. I don't, it's been a while. Um, we will be done with this, by the way, mid-August. Isn't that amazing? We'll be done mid-August. And here's the idea. So just like five, six more weeks of this. Um, we want to see the gospel. We want to see the story of Jesus, or just God's character, God's nature, how he works um, throughout scriptures. We believe all of God's word is inspired. Um, we want to work through it. We want to say, God, what is it you want to show our community today? Um, so to give you some framework for what is happening, what's going on, uh, know this. When in 1 Samuel, you have King Saul, first king, then David, his son Solomon. Because of Solomon's sins, the kingdom split. So Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom's called, southern kingdom's called Judah. The northern kingdom's called, it's confusing, I know. Because like, it's all Israel, I know, should have been, should have been. Ten tribes in the north called Israel, two in the south, Judah. Um, the reason why I think this is important for us to know is at different points, and this is weird, when you go through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we're reading about prophets, we're reading about kings, we're seeing what king went where, was he the north, was he the south, who's this prophet, did he prophesy in the north or south, there's some crossover, we actually see a lot of the major and minor prophets are now starting to come on the scene, which is so cool, so you'll be seeing guys like Isaiah, he comes on the scene, really around King Uzziah's time after he died, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. I want you to see this here because just know this. Next week, we're looking at the end and destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. So right now, if you look at these, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, there was 19 kings. The text we're in today in 2 Kings 16, we have the second to last king. We're not going to really read much about him. His name is Pekah. The next king, Hoshea, will be the last king of the north of Israel. If you know this, the, the northern tribe gets carried away captive into Assyria primarily. They're primarily taken away captive into Assyria. The southern kingdom is conquered by the, my Bible nerds, the Babylonians. So the Babylonians will go into captivity. And we're starting to see now some prophets introduced. So you see the, the first graphic of the northern kingdom of Israel. Hopefully we're seeing Pekah. He coincides. He actually attacks the king we're looking at today. So here's where we're at today. Southern kingdom. We're on King Ahaz. King Ahaz. You're like, there's quite a few more kings to go after him. Yes. Uh, but we're going to look at King Ahaz. He's attacked from the north, from his own brothers, from his own people, the Jewish people from the north, attacking the Jewish people in the south with the help of Syria. That's what we're looking at. You guys, you guys got that right. It's all in your head now. The reason why I do want to do this, though, is give you some framework for what is going on and just the conflict that is happening and the egos and the pride and just everything that's going on within these kingdoms. Um, I want to be really clear too. The reason why we're slowing down on Ahaz is because the scriptures do. There's a lot actually said about Ahaz. Ahaz is one of the most wicked kings, probably the most wicked king maybe after Ahab who is in the north, or yeah, Ahab in the north, but we're going to look at him, uh, Ahaz, who's just a very, very wicked king. And yet, and this is why this is so important for us today, God is so gracious to Ahaz. Um, God gives, I think, one of the most clearest and beautiful promises in all of the Old Testament to one of the most wicked kings, a guy who does not deserve this prophecy, does not deserve this promise, and yet God is so gracious to such a wicked king. And obviously, for us, God is so good and so gracious, and we have to admit we're not as good as we think we are. God is so good, so gracious to us. And uh, I want to look at the story of Ahaz because the Bible does slow down. So if you notice up here too, his dad, Jotham, good king. Remember Uzziah, his grandpa, powerful king. Everyone talked about his grandpa, Uzziah. Jotham's good. He's good. And then you have Hezekiah, phenomenal king. He has an evil dad, but a phenomenal king. The reason why I want you to see this, he's like sandwiched in between some good kings here. And he causes a lot of destruction. Uh, he leads the south. He leads Judah just on a terrible path. And yet... God is so gracious. So uh, simply put, the title today is The Incomprehensible Love of God. And that's long. We, we cannot comprehend. The love of God for me, it just does not make sense. There, there comes a point in time you're like, God, how can you still be this good to people who are still so wicked in their heart towards you? I, I, I just can't comprehend the love of God. And so we're going to look at that. So why don't we do this? Um, we're going to look specifically 2 Kings 16. I actually just want to read it. We haven't done that in a minute. We're going to read it all the way through, and then we'll pray. Can we do that? 2 Kings 16. Let's read about King Ahaz. By the way, fun fact, the prophets during his time was Isaiah and Micah. 
So if you're like, where's Micah in the Bible? Micah was alive prophesying during this time. All right, 2 Kings 16, verse 1. Let's just read about Ahaz. It says, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. So you have the north working with Syria. Let's take over Judah. Verse 6. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath, Pilisar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and, and the, in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So he goes, hey, Assyria, help. Syria is attacking me. Don't get confused. Assyria, Syria. Help. They're attacking me. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin, the king of Syria. Verse 10. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah, the priest, built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus, verse 12. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his offering, burnt, and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, on the great altar burned the morning burnt offerings and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and, and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to, to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. Verse 17, and King Ahaz cut off the frames from the stands and removed the basin from them and he took down the seat uh, from, from off of the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And, the, co and the, the covered way from the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? That's 2 Chronicles 28. You can put that in there. That's where it is. That's the part of the story. And Ahaz slept with his father's and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. I want you guys to remember every detail we just read, okay? Um, I want to look at this guy Ahaz, an incredibly wicked king who did some really profane things, and yet God was just amazingly gracious and good. And uh, we'll look at that in Isaiah. So why don't we just pray? Can we do that? Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we just want to say thank you. We come to a story like this, or maybe we've read things like this in the past. Maybe we move on quickly. Maybe the details distract us at times where we get lost in it. Jesus, we ask that you would take your word, and as you said, that we read the scriptures, and in them we think we have eternal life, but these are they which testify of you. And Jesus, we just want to see your goodness, your grace, the promise of your coming, the amazing thing that, Jesus, you are the son of Ahaz? It's just one of those things where we ask that you would bring clarity of thought, that you would remind us of how good you are, that, Jesus, in a really dark moment, that a light has dawned. 
And uh, we just ask that, Jesus, you would just um, reveal it to our hearts. In your name, amen. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, we moved into our uh, first little apartment, Maranatha Apartments, because when you're a Christian, you move into Christian apartments. Um, <laughs> it was literally called Maranatha, like, come Lord Jesus Apartments. That's where we moved into. That's really what it's called. I still think that's great. Uh, it's the only thing we could afford was a Christian apartment. So anyways, you're like, what is that? I don't know. It's some place in Southern California. We moved in this place, um, and it was, you know, it needed some love. I'm pretty sure as soon as we moved out, they found, like, asbestos in the walls, and it just, it was, you know, needed a lot of work and love. But we moved in there, and, you know, we're so excited. It's like, this is our first home, our first place. You guys know that feeling. It's like, yeah, this, this might be filled with disease and mold and death, but it's ours. You know, there, there's something about that. And uh, it was awesome. We loved it. And um, there's, you know, in the first few months, um, you know, newly married, just enjoying life. You know, in the middle of the night, you just see a handful of cockroaches. And you're like, no big deal. <laughs> That's just life. Whatever. And then you see some more, and it's, it's one of those things, right, where, like, it's always, I don't know why, but it always does surprise you. Like, it's dark, you turn the lights on, they're, like, scatter. And you're like, oh, my gosh. It's, like, very freaky. Um, and there was a few times where we saw quite a bit. So we're like, you know what? We should probably do something about this. And um, we had a little weekend where I was asked to speak at this church in Catalina Island. And so I went to, we went to Catalina. It's a little island off the coast. We went there for a couple nights. And we, so in the meantime, we bombed, like did the little bug bombs where you like set it in like different rooms and it just like, sprays the house. And then it kills you later probably as well. It's probably terrible for you. But we did the little bug bomb things. We put it in the house and we're like, let's go. We press the button and get in the car, drive. And we kind of forgot we, we did that, you know? Like, you're like, oh, yeah, we did that. <laughs> I remember getting home, opening the front door, and when I say thousands, I feel like it's an understatement. Thousands of dead cockroaches just in the middle of the apartment. It was, it was truly, like, I was actually, wow, I'm impressed. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, there's this, it was honestly unbelievable, and I didn't get it. I'm like, it's so weird to think, like, do they just... The, I don't know, they're like suffocating. They're like, die in the open, everyone. Like, because I remember moving couches and like they weren't, uh, they died in the open. It's like actually kind of nice. I'm like, thank you for dying in the open. I could like vacuum them up a lot easier. It was, it was honestly really bizarre. But it's, I remember I got home and my wife's in the car. I think it was with her parents. And we get there and I'm like, stay in the car. She's like, I'm staying in the car. Like she knew. Like she did not come out. I don't know if she ever saw it, but I mean, I'm just vacuuming up, like sucking, like, like using the tube, like, bloop, 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 just all these dead cockroaches. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Welcome to like the first year of marriage. Um, and it was just, it was one of those things for me where like we knew, we knew they were there, but we had no idea how bad it was. You know, obviously it's one of those things where like, you know, cockroaches, this is not a big surprise, cockroaches love darkness. They kind of move in darkness. You turn on lights, they scatter. And it's very interesting how that dynamic just works in life. Like cockroaches love darkness. Jesus, I think in some ways compared us to that because he says, you men also love darkness. Here's what I want to read to you, like good transition. Yeah, John 3. This is what Jesus says. Jesus said, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light lest his works should be exposed. It's interesting that Jesus is sitting down with Nicodemus, a spiritual leader of his day, and he goes, hey, listen, you have to understand man's nature. Men love darkness. We love darkness rather than light. The light has come, but men love darkness. Men, doesn't, men don't want to necessarily willingly expose themselves to light. We love darkness. Why? He says, because our deeds are evil. We're wicked. We want to do things, and the Bible talks us a lot. Darkness is like not just uh, an idea of like it's pitch black and it's dark at night. It's this word that's used often throughout Scripture to communicate chaos. There's darkness over the land. It's chaotic. It communicates brokenness, extreme brokenness, extreme sin. You want to do it at night. You don't want your deeds to be exposed. Jesus is basically diagnosing and saying, hey, we live in a very dark and broken world. You know, let's be honest with that. We live in a very dark and broken world. I do feel like maybe it's because now I'm a parent of three, but you're like, is the world just getting more and more wicked every day? You just kind of have those moments. And probably yes, and it's probably already been there. But social media might enhance that. There's probably so many factors to it. But you, it, it, we are in a bizarre moment. We, Isaiah, the prophet who's alive during this time, did talk about that. He says, there will be a day. He's like, what are those who call evil good and good evil? We are in that moment, I do believe, in a very just very real way where evil is viewed as good, good is viewed as evil. Christian ethics and morality at this point in time is honestly very immoral to the world. They look at our ethics and our morality, how we view life, the sanctity of life, how we view marriage, relationships. It's viewed as almost like you guys are the immoral ones. It's bizarre, actually. I remember like growing up in the 90s, and there was almost this thought of like, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. And now it's almost like, I'm not bad enough to be a Christian. Because <laughs> it's very interesting how just morality has, has flipped, obviously, in a very profound way. And I do think what Jesus said of his day, obviously, 
really lands incredibly well in our day. I do think men love darkness rather than light. We don't come to light. Why? Our deeds are evil. We don't want it to be exposed. And I think Jesus is diagnosing something we need to diagnose today in our moment. I love what one pastor, John Tyson, said. He says, a harsh diagnosis that is true is kinder than a vague diagnosis that does nothing. Sometimes we need a harsh diagnosis we don't want to hear it. We don't like it. The most loving thing a doctor could do is like, hey, doc, don't pull any punches. Tell me like it is. What's the diagnosis? How bad is it? It's not that bad. I mean, it's only like, no, like, no, please don't. I want to know how, how bad is it? Jesus is like, it's bad. Diagnosing that moment. Hey, men love darkness rather than light. We're kind of, I do believe we're in that moment of just morality is flipped upside down, obviously. And here's why I'm bringing this up. The New Testament plays off this idea of darkness and light a lot, a lot. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. But he says, you were once a part of a kingdom. The way in which the kingdom worked is a kingdom of darkness, but now you're part of the kingdom of the Son of his love. It's the kingdom of light. And God's like, I called you out of darkness, as Peter wrote, I called you out of darkness into my marvelous light. It's just a different way of living. It's, I'm not going to do things in secret. I want to be exposed. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Isaiah 7 through 9, and we'll, we'll kind of get there in a, in a little bit, but it actually plays off and says, during Ahaz's day, it actually uses this theme of light and darkness a lot. Basically saying, imagine how dark it was going from Uzziah, Jotham, really good kings, his dad, his grandpa to Ahaz, sacrificing his sons on the altar, profaning the temple. Isaiah is going, this is a really, I, you know, imagine seeing that as Isaiah going, this is dark. This is wicked. Like what? How did we go from this to this so quickly? What changed in culture? What changed in the world? What changed, like, how did we go from this to this moment, like in this way? How? How is this even possible? And it says this, Isaiah 9, God is speaking to Isaiah and actually speaking through Isaiah as well to Ahaz. And here's what God says in Isaiah 9, verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. There's this prophecy, there's this idea of you are in darkness, but a light has shone. It's weird because, I, and I want to say this, this has been fun for me to like study this week because, you know, I, I don't know, sometimes I can nerd out on this, but you're like, oh my gosh, the Bible's so connected. Like, I know it's connected, but then when you realize, like, no, this is beautiful. This is amazing how God ties this in. Here's the idea. In 2 Kings 16, we're introduced to Ahaz. 2 Chronicles 28 gives us some other details. We'll look at a couple of them. And then you see Isaiah, who just saw the Lord sitting on the throne under uh, Uzziah, he now, next chapter, we see him having a word for this king, King Ahaz, in Isaiah 7. And I want to tie it together. And here's the two points we're going to look at, because there's a lot of scripture, a lot of text. So I'm going to do my best to kind of pull it together so we can see, hopefully, the big picture of what's going on. But here's the first point, first thought. It's pretty simple. Um, Ahaz is incredibly wicked, obviously. Number two, God is incomprehensibly loving. <laughs> It's like, I don't know, I was trying to find a word. There's no other word. It's like, you are one of the most wicked kings that has truly ever existed, and God is still good and still gracious to you and to the people you're ruling over? Like, his love, his love doesn't make sense at times. It's one of those things you're like, I don't get that. That's a crazy type of love. So we'll look at one and two. So here's the first one. Um, Ahaz is incredibly wicked. And I, I do want to start off this way, because if you're like, Josiah, what's the point of today's message, or what's the point of just walking through scriptures in this way? I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the gospel is this. You are more wicked than you ever dared believed, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. If you're like, what's the thing today? It's weird, man. You and I are way more wicked than we realize. The way, what sin does in my heart, my life, my desires, wicked. What sin does in you, wicked. The idea is, and I love how he said it, we are more wicked than you ever dared believe. We don't want to believe that about ourselves. No, I'm pretty good. No. Part of the gospel is you have to come to terms with this. You know, I, it's funny when I talk to people who believe, I believe people are inherently good. And I'm like, I don't know how you, you can't be a parent. There's no way. There's no way. We're not inherently good. We're just disgusting evil beings. That's all I know. I love my children, but they're wicked little sinners, man. <laughs> the, the, the point to me is like, you have to come to terms with this in your own life. It's like, but I do this and this and this. It's like, even, even the good things we do, we do a lot of times for self-righteous reasons or want to be seen. There's so much wickedness in the heart of man. 
and we are way more wicked than we dare believe. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Um, I don't want to read about Ahaz and be like, that guy's wicked. Yes. I can't act like I'm not like him. I can't act like I do substitute things like him. I do similar things. Maybe not to that level because there's no temple and I can't profane it in that way, but I do that in my heart with the temple of God in me. My point is I want us to see it in that way. And then number two, I want us to see, man, God, I love how he said that then, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we even dared hope. Like, don't you hope to be loved by God? He's like, you're, you're so loved. Your hope, is that, your hope can even grasp how loved you are. Like, so we have to come to terms with both. I am so wicked and I'm so loved and so accepted in Jesus Christ. That is such good news. Can we just start there? So as we walk through like some details of the text, it has to be through that in mind. I'm way more wicked than I, I dare believe. And I'm way more loved than I, than I ever hoped for in Jesus. Yes, amen. Is that good news? So let's look at the first part. Let's start with wickedness because everyone loves talking about wicked sin stuff. Uh, not really. Here we go. Number one. Uh, I'm going to put this up here. So like, what did Ahaz do? Why was he so wicked? I'm going to try to throw a few ideas up here, tie it from 2 Chronicles. We'll just kind of look at this. Uh, he, made, he offered his own son, and actually 2 Chronicles says sons, as an offering to Molech. He made pagan sacrifices in the Valley of Hinnom, so he allowed other people to offer up their children. He made other sacrifices with animals as well. Uh, when he was threatened by Syria and Ephraim, by the way, in case you get confused, Ephraim a lot of times is a word that's used to describe the northern part of Israel. Ephraim was just a, a legit strong tribe. Ephraim is synonymous with the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, just when I say Ephraim, maybe you read scriptures too like that. And you're like, who's Ephraim? Like, just sometimes you gotta like see it big picture. So when he was threatened by Syria and Ephraim or Israel, he faithlessly looked to Assyria instead of trusting in Yahweh for help. So he's like, oh, I'm being attacked by my own brothers. I'm being attacked by the Syrians. I'm gonna go to Assyria the people that are eventually going to overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm going to go to them. I'm going to go to them for help. I'm not going to go to God. I'm going to go to them. Uh, he patterned the temple after pagan worship. We just saw that. He liked what was happening in Damascus with the king of Assyria. He's like, let's do that. Uh, Ahaz paid the Assyrians with treasures from the temple. Not a good idea. Uh, he then corrupted his worship by replacing the bronze altar with an altar like that in Damascus. And he also rearranged some of the temple furnishings. All right, so here's some things. You're like, we're not going to go through all of these detail by detail, but I do want us to feel the weight of it and understand uh, how wicked and how dark it really was for the people at this time. So first of all, uh, let's look at just the first one real quick. He offered his own son or sons as an offering to Molech. It says in chapter 16, verse 3, he even burned his son as an offering. If you are um, a part of Judah, and it, being a part of Judah, the southern kingdom, you had a benefit. The benefit was the temples in your kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel didn't have that. Remember, there were zero good kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. Zero good. A couple mixed kings are pretty good, pretty bad, but mostly bad. In Judah, the benefit was we actually had some good kings. We still have the temple. We actually had the Levites who practice basically the law here somewhat, fell apart a lot. But we actually have the temple. We're able to worship God. This is cool. We had Jotham, good king. Uzziah, pretty good king. We had some kings. Now here comes Ahaz. And Ahaz is like, hey guys, that pagan god of Molech, we're like supposed to drive out of the land. Yeah, we're going to start worshiping him now. I'm going I'm to lead the way by killing my own son. Now maybe you knew this or, or don't know this, but there would be basically different types of metal, maybe bronze, maybe gold, whatever. But there would be idols like dedicated to look like Molech or these different gods in their mind. You can even like see some of these images today, sadly. But you'll see uh, some sort of pagan god like Molech or some god extending its arms like this in, a, in an act of like receiving. They would heat up that metal very, very hot. They would take their children and place it on the arms of that idol. And the child would burn alive. And that's how they'd worship their God. That's something they would do. Awful, wicked, pagan, disgusting. The idea was you offer maybe your firstborn, you offer your, your kids as a way to prosper. If I do this, if I offer up my kids, I'll prosper. We can hear that and go, how wicked, how disgusting, how it is. Awful. But we, we do this in our own ways. How do I offer up my kids to prosper? How do I sacrifice my kids for our benefit, our family's benefit? Or I, I, in a sense, maybe it's like this, this spiritual worship. It's not happening. Your family, Sundays, Jesus, church, eh. But I'm, I want to offer, we're going to be doing everything we can outside of church. We're going to be very busy in the world, very active, so we can prosper. Whatever, or I want my kid to prosper. It's just, we do this in different ways. Obviously, in a modern way to put this is we still do this. About one million babies a year in America are aborted. We still offer up our kids so that we can have a safe, prosperous life. We still do this in our own version, our own way. It's, 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 my heart also grieves for those who've ever done that. I just want to be really clear. I, we love and have helped and talked with people who've also participated at different points in life in having an abortion. I want you to know that you are loved and accepted, but also at the same time, we know the pain that goes with that. I've talked to moms who've also had like dreams about their unborn 
and how it still haunts them. And I want you to know that Jesus' love and grace can walk, you, walk with you through that. And there is forgiveness at the cross. And thank you, Jesus, for that. The point of bringing it up is, though, we are not far different from Ahaz. Like, we are. I am. I am more wicked than I ever imagined. I can't assume that this is just this guy. America does not look very different than the kingdom of Judah at this point in time. That's something we have to see. And I want us to understand that because we can read these stories and be like, oh, they were so paganistic back then. We're not any different. We still do this in our own ways, in our own forms. So we see that's the first idea. He offered his son. He offered up other offerings. The third thought I put up here is when threatened by by Syria and Ephraim, he looks to us, Syria, for help. So he goes, oh, no, I'm surrounded by 10 tribes, my people. I'm surrounded by the Syrians. I'm going to call on us, Syria. I'm going to call on them. They're starting to look like the most powerful nation at this point in time in the region. Let's go to us, Syria, and let's try to ask them if they can help and wipe them out. They end up getting help, by the way. Second Chronicle clarifies he helps them. The king of Assyria does help him, but man, he also does battle him. He also ends up turning on Judah. He also ends up tank, taking a lot from Judah. It's not just like, hey, here's some gold from the temple and the king's palace. He actually ends up, you know, threatening him, doing things to him. So the point is, like, he goes to the enemy for help. In his mind is, an enemy of my enemy is my friends, right? Like, yes, they're attacking me, but the Assyrians also hate the northern tribe of Israel. I'll go to them, and then eventually they turn on him. This is kind of how it works, which is, okay, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm trapped. I'm not going to turn to God. I'm going to turn to the world for help. The world will help you. Maybe it helps you in some capacity, in some way, but it eventually turns on you or eventually doesn't go the way you thought it would go. That's kind of the idea. I actually find this fascinating. I want to bring up these verses in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet during primarily the, the, the king Jehoiakim, primarily during his reign, also wicked king. This is right before Judah's taken captive into Babylon, but the same thing happened. Judah's being surrounded by the Babylonians, And they're going, ah, help. They turn to Egypt, all right? So in Jeremiah, you have Judah, surrounded by Babylonians. They do what we just read here. Instead of turning to the Assyrians, they turn to the Egyptians. Help us. This is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 2, and I want to just put the verse up here. Jeremiah 2. It says, uh, how how much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. The reason why I'm showing you this is, he's like, Judah, you at one point in time turned to Assyria for help, and they turned on you. Remember that? That's the story. You turned to Assyria, they turned on you. You're turning to Egypt, they're not going to help you. And that last phrase just stands out to me. You will not prosper by them. You're going to the world to help you in your time of need. It's not going to do what you think it's going to do. You're going to the Assyrians. Help us fight. The Egyptians, help us fight. Why haven't you learned? Time and time again, God is like, you keep turning towards your enemy for help. You keep turning towards the world for help. Then you're frustrated when they don't help you the way you wanted to be helped. Here's another verse in Jeremiah 2 that I just, man, this one got me. The guy. I remember reading this like 19. I'm like, oh no, this like hit me so hard. Here, Jeremiah 2. That's what he says in verse 28. God says this to the kingdom of Judah. That's what we're looking at, the kingdom of Judah. God says, but where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. God is saying this. Oh, now you want my help? Now you want my help. You're turning to me? Go to the gods you've been worshiping all this time. See if they help you. Don't turn to me just when you're in trouble. Now you want to turn to me? It's like, okay, go to the things you've been worshiping. See if they can help you. Sadly, we do do that. Sadly, it's like, oh, no, life's hard. I'll go to God. I've been worshiping money, power, success, this, that, name it. You name it. Now I'm in trouble, now I'll go to God. God's like, no, no, go to the things you've been worshiping. See if they help. See those little pagan things you created and see if they help you. They're not going to help you. And I, you see that kind of that sarc- You see God's like, what are you doing? Either they don't turn to him or when they do turn to him, it's because they only, want, they only want something from him. They don't want him. They only want to use him, but they actually don't want him. What are you doing? So they turn to Assyria. It does not end up helping. It does not end up benefiting them. And then here's uh, what it says in, in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 20. Listen to this. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 20. We'll put the verse up here. It says, So Tiglath, Pelasar, king of Assyria. Listen to this. It says, He came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him to Ahaz. So he goes to Assyria for help. And it says, No, the king of Assyria then afflicts him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the, uh, the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. So he's like, all right, he got help according to 2 Kings 16 momentarily. Yes, they didn't win in that moment, but it ends up, he goes, it ended up hurting him, not strengthening him. It, it did not work out the way he thought it would. 
So again, in those moments of crisis, what do you and I turn to? Do we turn to some outside help in the world, or do we go, God, of course I'm going to turn to you. Like you, I've been worshiping you. I've been looking to you. I love you. I've been longing for you. In my moment of need, I'm going to turn to you. I'm not going to turn to some other thing. Why would I? But he turns to Syria. He doesn't help in the way he thinks. We just start to see A has his downfall. Next thought. It's actually 2 Kings uh, verse 10 and 11. Here's the idea. He copies the temple after the pattern of the pagans. So I want you to stay with me briefly. Let's turn our temple and our service of worship into like the world's service of worship. So it's 2 Kings 16 verse 10. It says, When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz, he calls on Uriah, the priest, a model, to make a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah, the priest, he built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz, uh, before he arrived from Damascus. I, I find this fascinating. You guys remember his grandpa, Uzziah? He's like, I'm going to go into the temple. We saw this last week. Uzziah goes into the temple. He acts like a priest. He tries to burn incense. He tries to do things he's not called to do. I love it. says 80 priests stopped him. 80, it says. I don't know why that detail is so cool. 80 priests like, yo, king. I don't know. Just this, this king who has all the power and then 80 priests, like, not in our house. So cool. Uh, and then you have this guy. You have Ahaz go, uh, hey, Uriah, can you just like, make this pattern of the temple and the, their system just like, like, the, like for us? Can you make it exactly the way it is? He's like, yeah, I got you, Uriah. So weak, weak no spine. Uriah falls apart. Yeah, let's do it. Here's the idea, though. He goes, I like the patterns of the world's worship. Let's copy the patterns of the world's worship. I like the, pa- I like the patterns of the pagan worship. There's always, we see this throughout scriptures, there's always some sort of counterfeit version of, of true spiritual worship. There's always. Okay. There's not this idea that Christians are worshipers and everyone else isn't. There is this idea that everyone's worshipers, but what do you worship and how do you worship? So it is funny, right? Like we do hopefully know this. Don't act like atheists don't worship things. Atheists worship things all the time. Maybe it's humanism, secularism, science. Everyone worships something. This is the Savior. This will get us out of this. Let's bow down to this. Let's give money to this. They tie to this. They give to this. They worship this. They sing about this. They go to the stadiums and Taylor Swift this. I don't know. But they, we do this. We raise our hands and scratch and cry. Oh, my gosh, you're so good. And then we do here. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone. We get that, right? Everyone is a worshiper. And so often he's saying, hey, um, what the kingdom of Israel, what the church has fallen into is, okay, we like what the world is doing. How do we copy and paste? He's like, hey, hey, Uriah, let's copy and paste exactly what they're doing. This is dangerous, obviously. There's something about this as the church. It's like, hey, um, I don't feel the need at times to reinvent the wheel, church-wise speaking. I, I want to learn from others. I want to learn from church history. I want to learn from scriptures. But can I tell you what I love? I love coming together in large assemblies, break out in small assemblies. I love that in Acts 2. It says they gathered in the temple and they met house to house. I love that they continued to fastly in the apostles' doctrine, the word, prayer, communion. I love that in fellowship, breaking of bread. Yeah, like, I, it's like, hey, we have this model. Let's not, we don't need to like hype it up a little bit. It's so, like, what God has given us is so beautiful. I don't need to add, like, lights, cameras, action. It's like, let's just do what Jesus has given us. Let's just enjoy him. Yo, can I call, there's a guy, A.W. Tozer, just speaks fire. If you're here, I don't know, I'd probably just, he'd probably speak fire at me, and I'd be like, okay, I'm done now. Um, but I love what Tozer says about the church. Here, listen, just listen to this. Tozer, years ago, says, the church is in danger of losing her testimony if she does not remain true to her principles. I believe that one reason why the church at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. The church that can offer the world nothing but a good time is doing nothing to meet its needs. It is God's revelation that the church must offer, and when she does offer that and that alone, she will find that she has everything the world needs. It's like, we got to stop saying, what's the world doing? Okay, let's try to match their level of hype, match level of energy, match what It's like, we have something we can offer in the person of Jesus that we need to get back to. Some beautiful, we need to get back to the idea of like, I'm going to follow Jesus, my wife, my kids. We're going to do this together. We're going to sin. We're going to fail along the way. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to love on each other. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to fight for this together. We do this together in the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. The world could be in radically change and impact. But when we begin to look exactly like the world, as Jesus said, we lost our saltiness. We lost the thing that made us different. And here's what the king is doing. Ahaz is like, I like what they're doing. Hit copy and paste your eye. Okay, let's do it. 
And we have to just be aware of the temptation to say, let's play the world's game of hype. Maybe we can also kind of do similar things and draw people. It's like we just have to be aware of that temptation and maybe just give back to what the Holy Spirit has given us and live that out together in the name of Jesus. Maybe we can do that. And maybe that'll actually be more successful because people go, what you have, this contentment, this peace, this love, this, this diversity that you're not like trying to fight for and do, it just happens naturally by the grace of God. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Like, yeah, welcome to the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit does really cool things when you just try to follow him as best as you can. God is so good that way. And it's him, it's his work, and it's his church, and he wants to do it. And I think we have to learn from Ahaz and Uriah's mistake to say, yeah, yeah let's just copy the patterns of the, the world's way of worship. It's like, not, not here, not gonna work. You guys with me? I love this. It says this in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 19. Here's what it says. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz. Ugh. So the Lord, God's like, yo, Judah, you've been awesome. Uziah, pretty good. Jotham, good. Ahaz, um, no, not good. So the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. Now I want to read what it says next in 2 Chronicles 28 so you can understand Ahaz's mindset. Now look at what Ahaz, this it like tells us what he's thinking. 2 Chronicles 28, we'll put the verse up here, verse 22. It says, in the time of his distress, surrounded by Syria, surrounded by Israel, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. This same King Ahaz, love how it says that. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria have helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all of Israel. Yo, this is crazy. So it says, notice these, these phrases. In his times of distress, he became more unfaithful. This is the time when that pressure's on to try to be faithful. But in his times of his distress, it says King Ahaz, the same King Ahaz became more unfaithful. Notice his perspective. They beat us. Their gods beat us. I'm going to worship them. You just hear the bitterness. Like when I read that, I'm like, oh, you hear how bitter he is. God didn't do what I wanted him to do. Well, then I'm not going to worship him. We are in this weird moment. I feel like there's so many podcasts about this, so many teachings about this, but there's like this deconstruction movement with Christians. It's like, I went to church and the church hurt me or whatever. They have these different stories. A lot of times it's, I prayed this or I asked for this. I was so faithful. I was so good to God. I did all these things for God. God didn't show up. And that's why it led me on this journey of leaving my faith. And you hear that and you're like, okay. So you never really worshiped God. You're just mad that God wasn't your genie. You never really worshiped. You never really loved him. You're just mad that you, he didn't do what you wanted him to do. So now you're bitter and you're leaving. And now my heart, by the way, I don't want to sound cynical. Like my heart does break for them and I want to be gracious to them. I want to be kind. I want to engage them a little more, more lovingly. But I hear this story on repeat and it's like, God didn't do what I wanted him to do and I'm out of there. And you're like, oh, the bitterness just seeps in. It's like, okay, so God is not God. You're the God. When God doesn't do what you want to do as the supreme God, you get mad at that lesser God. And so you walk away. And it's this heartbreaking thing you see time and time again. And I try to write out different ways uh, or just start with this question. What do you do? What do I do when God doesn't do what we want him to do? What do we do? When God doesn't answer the prayer you want to answer, when God doesn't do the thing you think he should do, because that just makes so much sense. What do you do when God doesn't do what you want him to do? For Ahaz, he became more unfaithful in all of his distress. He became more unfaithful. He just goes, those gods... The, those gods of the Syria, they defeated us. I'm going to worship them. They answered their prayers for their people. God, you answer my prayers. I'm going to go worship them. And you see this. God doesn't do what I want to do. I'm going to go worship the world's gods. Sex, power, whatever, money. I'm going I'm to go worship their gods because it seems like their gods are giving them what they want. Their gods are doing what they want. My God's not. We have to understand this. Um, God knows that our greatest need isn't to get what we want out of life, but to make God our life. God knows, listen, your greatest need is not to get what you want. Your greatest need is to get me. I love what Paul says. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. And I, I, sometimes I look at that last part, he will appear with him in glory. He goes, no, when Christ, who is our life, Christ is our life. When he appears, we'll appear with him in glory. God knows, Ahaz, you want something from me, you don't want me. You want the life you think I should give you when I am the life. And I do think we fall into, I know I fall into this trap. I want God to do something for me or it should have gone this way. It didn't go that way. We get mad at him and God's like, I am the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I, I, what you want out of life is only to be found in me. I give life and life more abundantly. You want something from me, you want a life. You want a name. You want something. I'm that. Like, it's me. 
And I think it's so, we, I, listen, we fall, I fall, all of us fall in this trap of like, I thought it would go this way, why didn't God do it? Ahaz is so mad. I, God, you're supposed to show up. Their gods showed up, I'm going to worship their gods. Okay? So you don't ever want, you never really wanted me to begin with. When in reality, I can give you an offer to life is what you really need. So um, when God doesn't do what we want, we have to realize he is doing something better. Okay, here's the idea. We're going to get to the number, the number two part really soon. God doesn't do what Ahaz wanted him to do, so he turns to Assyria. God is like, and Isaiah shows up, he's like, yo, I want to do something for you. Ask for a sign. I love this. God, guys, we've got to piece the stories together now. During this moment in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, he's surrounded by Israel. He's surrounded by actually the Philistines, the Edomites, it says as well. So he's surrounded by quite a few. Israel, Syria, Edomites, Philistines, calls on Assyria. Hey, help me. God shows up during this time, according to the prophet Isaiah, and is like, God wants to answer your prayer, probably not how you want. Ask for a sign. So I want to turn there in just a second, but I want to make sure before we do, look at this last phrase it says in 2 Chronicles 28, 22. It says, but they were the ruin of him and of all of Israel. So he serves these other gods, and it was the ruin of him. And I mean, you guys get this. Anything that you or I worship, if it's not the one true God, will be the ruin of us. Anything that we worship... If it's not the one true God, it will be the root of us. I just that phrase, he turned to the gods of Damascus. He turned to the, God, the Syrian God, and it was the ruin of him. It's like, oh, he was like so close. God shows up, and he's like, I don't want your plan. I'm going to go with my plan. So here's the idea. Ahaz is insanely wicked. God is incons- incomprehensibly loving. God's love does not make sense to me because this wicked king who offered his sons up to Molech who is tearing apart the temple that God gave designs for, that is worshiping now paying gods in the Valley of Hinnom. This guy, God shows up and is like, I know you're surrounded. I want to offer you a savior. And he's like, I'll just go with the Assyrians. Thank you. I'm good. What is the savior? Isaiah 7. Can you guys turn there? So number two, we're going to look at God is incomprehensibly loving. Isaiah 7. And this is to me where the Bible, you're like, whoa, this is so cool. We're going to do like a Christmas in July sermon now. All right, number two. In case you're like, what does that mean? We'll just, you'll see. Isaiah 7, I actually want to read this with you guys. We don't always read uh, the first part of this text. We kind of just jump to the good part. We're going to read this first part as well. Let me explain. Uh, it's Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of what? Of who? Ahaz. Oh, that's the guy we were talking about, right? In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. <laughs> I don't know why, again, Jotham. I can't say it without, I feel like I have a lisp, so sorry, forgive my brain. Son of Jotham. Uh, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to rage war against it. We read about that, right? Here's Ahaz, surrounded by these guys. But yet they could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Who's Ephraim? Israel. I know it's like Israel. Uh, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're, They're terrified. Like, oh no, we're done. Verse three. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. Isaiah, go meet Ahaz. You and share Jashub, your son. Isaiah, bring your boy. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the, the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. <laughs> because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah. By, I just, by the way, verse 4 you know, this is like the parent verse. I don't know. I love this. What a good prophet. This prophet shows up. Isaiah shows up with his son. I just feel like that's a wound to him. He shows up with his son. What did Ahaz do? Offered up his son to a pagan god. He shows up with his sons and says what? Be careful. Be quiet. Stop talking. I love that. She's so good. This is my, my verse to my kids every morning. I'm just kidding. Um, be careful. Guys, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. He's like, just, by the way, I just think we need to hear those words. Sometimes we always feel like prophets have just impending doom. When I, I, God's like, give this word to Ahaz. Look at this wicked guy Ahaz. Isn't this crazy? God's so, God is so good. This wicked guy who offered his sons up, did these terrible things, profanes the temple, all this stuff. Tell him, be careful, be quiet. Don't let your heart be faint. I'm looking out for you. That's how this prophecy begins. It's unbelievable to think, wait, God, you're so patient with this, such a wicked person. Yeah. Me too. So patient with such a wicked person. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Don't worry about these smoldering two people. Okay, keep going. Verse 5. Because Syria 
with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. we got a plan. We're going to set up our own king there. Thus says the Lord God, ready? It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. They're one king away after this from being shattered, from being a people. Verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. By the way, the capital of Israel was Samaria. Just stay with me. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Gosh, you ever read verses in the Bible? Like, oh my gosh, that's fire. Okay, this is one of those verses. I, I want you guys to like, discover this on your own. I love this. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is just the story of the New Testament. It's the book of Habakkuk. It's the book of Romans. The just shall live by faith. What does God want? Faith. What pleases God? What pleases him? Faith. He goes, hey, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Another way it says it is you will not be established. If you're not firm in faith, you're not going to be established. You're going to have no foundation. You have to be firm in faith. Here he's saying this to a wicked guy. All right, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask anything you want. It can be such a deep request, high request. I'm going to answer it. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. <laughs> and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Yo, this is so good. If you're not catching what's going on, God's like, ask for a sign. I want to do it. And then like, he's trying to be all biblical all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm not supposed to ask God for signs. <laughs> he's like, oh, you, you don't weary men. You're going to weary God. He's like, no, no, I told you to ask for a sign. You should have asked for a sign. You should have. I told you to do this, and you didn't. So that, what does he say in verse 14? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I love that. You're not going to ask for a sign. I'm, I'm going to, I asked, I basically saying, I asked you to ask for something incredibly difficult, basically impossible. I, wa- I wanted you to ask for a sign because I want to show up and I want to show up in a way that is impossible to man. I want to show up in a way that makes no sense to man. So what does God say? Therefore, the Lord himself will show you, give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Really quick. Verse 15, you can go on to read it. Chapter 8, you can go on to read it. I want to be very clear. There is a short-term fulfillment of this scripture. According to Isaiah 8, you see a woman who gives birth to a son. It seems to be this. It seems to be at face value. I will say, just like most prophecies, and you got to stay with me, most prophecies in the scriptures have a double or dual meaning, meaning there's usually partial fulfillment in the moment and a long-term fulfillment later. It's almost always that way. We see that very clearly here in Isaiah 7. Now, here's the thing. You're surrounded by armies. What's the sign going to be? A baby. I don't want a baby. I want an army. <laughs> you know, like this is, you got to understand the big picture. God's like, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to show up for you. You're not going to be, they're going to be destroyed actually. Ask for a sign. I'll get, ask, it could be as deep as hell, as high as heaven. Ask for a sign. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. God doesn't want me to do that. God just told you to do that. I'm going to give you a sign, God says. The virgin, and yes, it's a word that also could mean young woman. And yes, if you speak to your Jewish brothers or sisters, they'll say, no, 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 this just means young woman. Obviously, the New Testament brings clarity to that, and I also think other scriptures as well, but I'll hold off on that for a second. Yes, a young woman buried a child. By the way, that's not very significant. Let's just be honest. When people say, no, 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 this just speaks of a young woman giving giving birth, that's not much of a sign. Um, That happens a lot, especially back in Bible days, all right? A young woman giving birth is like a dime a dozen, okay? By the way, that doesn't doesn't stand out. We just have to understand, like, I've talked to people, it's like, we all know this means a young woman, not a virgin. I'm like, no, that is a terrible sign. Like, hey, someone from this room will probably be pregnant in the next five years. Like, that's a, no, like, obviously, that's not a prophecy. That's not a prophecy then. It has to stand out. It has to be significant. It has to be like, okay, what is going on? Okay, there will be a virgin, a virgin, someone who has not had sex. She'll give birth. She'll have a son. His name is significant, obviously. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Ahaz, I want to give you God with you. Ahaz, I want to give you the most incredible things you can imagine. Ask for any sign. It could be the biggest sign you can imagine. I'm not going to ask for one. Okay, I'll give you a really impossible sign. A virgin is going to give birth. His name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. The crazy thing, again, is that's not what he thinks he wants or needs. I'm surrounded, God. You give me a baby. Whether this is messianic or whether this is a f- partial fulfillment, it doesn't make sense to him either way. It's like, I just want to stop this army. God's like, I know what you want. I want to give you the most important, I, I would say this, 
I would say this is the most important and significant prophecy in all of the Old Testament to one of the most wicked kings who ever existed. That for me is mind-blowing. That's why when I was studying this week, and I'm like, oh, I, you know, I've read Isaiah 7. Through, I've actually taught in Isaiah 7. But for me, like having time to soak in his wickedness, soak in 2 Chronicles 28, 2 Kings 16, kind of sit in this a little bit. And God's like, hey, you wicked, terrible human who offered up your son, I'm going to give you my son. You offered up your son to a pagan God, I'm going to give you Emmanuel, God with you. You say, Josiah, but it's fulfilled in, in Isaiah 8, right? No, Isaiah 8 is a partial fulfillment. He actually goes on, same, by the way, this is not like a break. It continues to go on, Isaiah the prophet speaking, and what does he say in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? Isaiah 9, verse 6, the same kind of, the same context speaking Ahaz has about a Savior. Isaiah 9, 6, you know this well, but he says, for unto us a child is born. What is this child? Think of the context. There will be a child born that will be Messiah, that will save you, that will be Emmanuel, God with you. There will be a child born to you. And he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, this thing that's stressing you out, the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is not just some baby. This is not just some young woman giving birth. This is a virgin who will give birth to Messiah. And Isaiah goes on to communicate. Isaiah 7, 8, 9 builds off each other. It's like completely different. It's like we got to get rid of chapter breaks in our minds. It does a lot of disservice at times. God goes on to say, this child I just promised you, this Emmanuel, will be Everlasting Father. He'll be mighty God, mighty God. You couldn't be more clear. Is Jesus God? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The reason why I find this so unbelievable at times when I read this is going, wait a second. Like, so again, welcome to Christmas in July. That's why I almost called this sermon that, but I didn't because I'm like, it's cheesy. But it's still good. For me, when I read this story, it's usually at Christmas and it's usually that time. Like, look at this child's born. This is unbelievable. It's like, hey, Ahaz, you offered up your kids as a, live, as a sacrifice to these pagan false gods. I'm going to give you my son, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I'm going to give you my son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with you. God with you. You have nothing to fear. He's like, that's great and all, but I don't want a baby. I, I want an army. So obviously for him, he gets this, Isaiah 7 through 9. And what does he do? He still calls on Assyria. Help me. Because this is not what he wanted. He's like, I didn't want this answer. I wanted the answer the way I wanted it. I wanted immediate help in the way I, I, I wanted it. So Isaiah 7 through 9, like if you put it in the middle of 2 Kings 16 and it goes back to him going to Assyria for help, this is unbelievable. It's like he, he dismisses one of the most beautiful, incredible promises and prophecies in all of the Old Testament so he can have what he thinks he needs in that time and moment. And then what happens? Remember the king of Assyria, what did he do? He ends up hurting him. He ends up causing pain and trouble for him. The thing he thought would bring him hope didn't. The reason why I, like, I have to spend time and think about this and focus on this and talk about this with you guys, for me, just reading this, my like, God, you're so good that you give literally one of the most important scriptures, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, it's the most important text about the Messiah, about the, the Savior being born of a virgin. The fact that in Matthew 1, when the angel's speaking to Mary and to Joseph and, and at different times, says, he, he quotes this, I'll just put it to you again. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by Isaiah saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So the angel's like, remember that promise to King Ahaz? He's here. He's here. It's Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, our God saves. He's here. This is so unbelievable to me because King Ahaz is like, cool, cool, cool. Great promise and all about a virgin giving birth. I always want an army. Help me now. And you missed out on the life-saving offering from God, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior. The point is, we can do this a lot. God, I really want you to do something for me. He's like, hey, I gave you Jesus Christ and him crucified. Cool, but I really want this. It's like, no, 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 no. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have the Messiah, you have everything. He's trying to say, I'm offering you the Messiah. And you're like, well, I just want the army. Can you just give me the army? I don't want to, again, we have to see this. God's like, I want to give you the most precious, amazing promise and thing I have, and that is my son, that is Emmanuel, that is God with you. And you're like, cool, 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 God, thank you for that promise. But like King Ahaz, we go, but I also would really like this instead. I said, you're, you're, you're missing it. I'm giving you the primary thing, and you want the secondary thing. I'm giving you God with you. God with you is better than an army. God with you is better than anything you could request. He's like, but he, do you see how Ahaz, and it's like not... You see how he simply just goes to Assyria, dismisses Isaiah 7, dismisses this prophet, bringing his son, prophesy. He misses all of it. He could have had God with him. He, he could have entered into the promise that God had given him. Because I have this promise for you. And I, I just imagine he's like, you know what, Lord, I received that. I received God with me. You know what that means? You're with me. You know what that means? I don't need an army if I have you. 
He could have received it in that way, but he didn't. He missed out. In Isaiah chapter 8, I just want to put this verse up here because I think it's so profound. And again, maybe we just pass over these too quickly. Maybe we don't appreciate this. But in Isaiah 8, God basically calls out the people. And it's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 9. Listen to this. The Lord's speaking. It says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. I love this. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. This was the promise. Do we get it? He's like, I need an army. He's like, I'm going to give you a manual. He rejects it and turns to Assyria. But Isaiah, and Isaiah 8, he goes, hey, armies, hey, people, gather together. Gather together, have counsel, create the best strategy of attack. It will come to nothing. I love, again, do you see that? It will come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand. Why? God is with us. That promise was more than enough to conquer the armies around him. And he missed it. He's like, oh, no, thank you. I'm going to go to Assyria. God is like, what do you want? I want this. I want an army. I want, God's like, okay, I know what you want. I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you a manual. God with you. Yeah, but I kind of still want, like, that's great in theory and all, God. No. He's like, do you not get it? They could have come together, had counsel, spoken words all day long, but that would have done nothing. He's like, do it. It will not last. It will not matter because Emmanuel, God is with you. And he, he, passed, he has passed upon the most beautiful promise from God for an army. My point in all of this is it's so sad how the church will settle for less than Jesus. Like, gee, we have Jesus and we'll settle for less. We have the promise from God, God with us. And we're like, that's cool, but I, I kind of want something different. Listen, do not settle for less. Do not make the same mistake A has made in this. Don't look at this. By the way, the same, t- who's the prophets I mentioned at the very beginning? That's why I want to bookend this. The prophets during this time are uh, who? Isaiah and Micah. What does Micah say during this time? Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. At the same time, Micah's like, yo, there's king. He fails. He failed. I'm going to give you a king from everlasting to everlasting. I'm going to give you the king that is the alpha and the omega. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the first and the last. During the same time, as we know this guy is Micah, and he's saying, oh, Ahaz, do you not see what God offered you and you just pass it up? He's offering the Messiah, man. He's offering you the most significant thing, and you'd rather settle for less. Listen, God has given us the most beautiful, precious thing. Please, I beg you, don't settle for less. Don't act like that's not good enough. Don't act like, okay, Jesus, yes, but what about if you have Emmanuel, God with us, what else do you need? It goes back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, if I have the Lord, I have no wants. If I have the Lord as a shepherd, I have no needs. Because why? Sheep need food. Sheep need water. If they have the shepherd, they have the access to the water. They have the access to the pasture. They have the access to protection and safety. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no needs. Exactly. You think you need X, but if you have the Lord is my shepherd, if you have Emmanuel, God with us, you have everything you need. Ahaz, though, sounds nice. Sounds great. I'll take an army. He missed it. He missed out. Listen, I believe that New Testament promise, obviously for us, we have Emmanuel, we have God with us, we have this child who's born, we have the son who's given, we have the everlasting God, we have this. Do not make this insignificant like Ahaz. Do not make this, oh, that's cool then. This is a promise for us today. Enter into the promise of the Messiah through the person of Jesus. Believe on Jesus and you'll be saved is what I'm saying. Call upon him. God is still with us. Lo, I am with you always. Jesus said he's with us. Don't act like Ahaz and be like, oh, that's great, but it'd be nice if, mm-mm, that's enough. We say, I love when we're singing Jireh, and I'm like, oh my gosh, do I believe that? Jireh, you are enough. And I'm like, are, yeah, you are. Yes. And I, but so often I, I, I fall and I settle for lies. He's enough. He's what we need. He's what we look to. Here's what we're going to do. We pass out communion. Hopefully you got that. If you are a believer in Jesus, this is a time for us right now to take this and just celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. This is a time for us to say, Jesus, thank you for your death. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you for your forgiveness. Here's what I'm asking that we do right now. And I know it can be distracting, but here's what I'm going to do. Can you just take a second, bow your head, close your eyes. I want you guys for a second, holding the communion in your hands, just you talk to Jesus right now. I want this to be very personal between you and him. Emmanuel, God with us, God with you. Take this communion. We're going to have the worship team come up and worship. But I'm going to say, let's make this a time where we can praise him, worship him, thank him, look to him. 
and realize that we have the greatest promise today offered to Ahaz. We have it fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And we want to say thank you. Listen, if you are not a believer in Jesus, there's no need to take communion. Don't take it. Don't remember or celebrate something you don't even believe in. I would say actually, in fact, don't, do not do that. <laughs> Please don't. don't. Don't take this if you don't believe in Jesus. But right now, if you're going to know, I, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I want to celebrate Jesus. I want to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Then take, eat, drink freely. Like enjoy this. Thank him. Celebrate him. So here's what I'm going to do. Again, I ask you, bow your head. Take a second. I'm going to pray but we're just going to enter into a time of worship. During the worship, continue to pray. Thank God. Praise Him. Eat, drink. As soon as you're done, as soon as worship's over, I'll come back up and close this out. But I just want you guys to spend time with Jesus right now. This is like you, Him, us together, but us focusing on Emmanuel. So let's do that. Lord, we just want to say thank you so much for this promise that was offered to Ahaz and yet rejected. That you said, though you're surrounded, I'm giving you Emmanuel. I'm giving you God with us. And Lord, I just ask that um, we would enter into that. <laughs> God, that you, you gave us that in your son, Jesus. You told Mary, you told Joseph that Emmanuel is coming and we know now he has come, that you are with us. We just want to say thank you that though we are like Ahaz, though our heart is way more wicked than we ever imagined, we are way more loved by, who, by you and who you are and what you've done. And so I just ask God that we can enjoy this. Look to you, say thank you. Thank you that it's not based off our merit or what we've done. We are holding this cup and holding this cracker and we drink this in remembrance of you, Jesus, saying thank you for your blood that was spilled. Thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us, that you are in us, that this beautiful reminder of communion is not just some religious or traditional thing we do, Lord, mindlessly, we take this with this expectation that, God, you are with us and you are in us, and we are now part of the body of Christ and what you have joined together, Lord, that, that nothing separate, that this is your body, that this is your bride, that we are joined and knit together with you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would pour out your love, your grace, your favor on us, and we could just worship you. So, church, take a second, take some time, eat, drink when you're ready, pray, sing, worship. This is just you and Jesus time. <laughs>